Welcome to this podcast from Riverside Church Whitstable. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. If you would like to find out more information about us, why not check out our website at riversideuk.org, our Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at WhitRiverside. I'm going to welcome up Simon now. Okay, so we're starting a new sermon series today. It's called Living Differently. And we're going to go through the book of 1 Peter, which is only a small book, so you should be able to read it fairly easily uh, and journey with us as we go through it. And um, this really is all about living differently, hence my, uh, my graphic there. How are we going to shine? How are we going to be different? And that's what Peter writes to encourage the church in this letter that goes around all the churches We'll see a bit later on where it travels around what's now modern-day Turkey. He writes a letter to tell the people, the early Christians, you need to be encouraged, you need to be built up, you need to be living counterculturally. You need to live from a different set of values, a different platform. And the key theme in this letter is the fact that we are resident aliens. Okay? So you're an alien. Congratulations. Okay? You are called to live differently to the people around you. Jesus has basically messed your life up. Do you realise that? He's come and he's messed your life up. He's changed you into a different kind of person, a different kind of being. And now you live on this strange planet called Earth. And you live as a stranger in a strange land. And that's the the title of today's talk. You live differently because Jesus has come and changed your internal set of values, your being. And he's asked you to live by a uh, a different set of beliefs. And we're called to be that people that live counterculturally. We're called to be that people that live as light in the darkness. And so if you thought Christianity was all about keeping your head down, well, I'm afraid you're wrong. You know, Christians are never called to blend in. They were never called to keep their heads down. They were never called to kind of walk on by and just not be noticed. Christians were called to turn the world upside down. You're looking at me shocked now. We were called to be salt and light, to turn the world upside down, to be the seasoning, the transforming agent, the catalyst, the seed that's planted that grows into the biggest tree in the garden. And we're called to be people that live and shine brightly for Jesus. And over the next few uh, weeks, we're going to look into 1 Peter and see how he encourages you and I to live counterculturally in all sorts of different ways. The world says one thing, we're called to do another thing. We're called to say another thing. We're called to be another thing. So we're going to start by watching the excellent Bible Project introduction video to this, about seven minutes long. They do a fantastic job giving you an overview of uh, this book. So watch the screens for about uh, seven minutes. The first letter of Peter. His name is Jesus, and he was part of the inner circle of the 12 disciples. When he made his confession that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus changed his name to Kephas, which is Aramaic for rock, which was later translated into Greek as Petros or Peter. Jesus promised that he would become a leader among the apostles to guide the Messianic community in Jerusalem through its earliest years. And that's what happened. Remember the early chapters of the book of Acts. Eventually, Peter was called to carry the good news of Jesus beyond the borders of Israel, however, and this letter was written decades into that mission in the wider Roman world. We discover at the conclusion of this letter that Peter is in Rome, which he calls Babylon, 
one. And we learned that while Peter commissioned the letter, it was actually composed by a man named Silvanus, who was a co-worker of Peter. This was a circular letter sent to multiple church communities in the Roman province of Asia Minor, which is in modern-day Turkey. And Peter learned that these mostly non-Jewish Christians were persecuted. They were facing hostility and harassment from their Greek and Roman neighbors. And so Peter wrote to encourage them in the midst of their suffering. And this helps explain the letter's design and its main themes. It opens with a greeting, and then it moves into a poetic song of praise to God, which introduces the key themes that are explored in the main body of the letter, where he first affirms the new family identity of these persecuted Christians, which will help them see their suffering as a way to bear witness to Jesus. And this has a way of focusing their future hopes on the return of Jesus. Let's dive in. You'll just see how all the pieces work together. So Peter opens by greeting these churches as the church chosen people of God who are exiled around the world. Now, Peter makes clear throughout the letter that these Christians he's writing to are Gentiles, but here he describes them with phrases from the Old Testament that describe how God chose the people of Israel, the family of Abraham, who was himself an exile and wanderer. This is a key strategy that Peter repeats through the whole letter. He wants these suffering non-Jewish Christians to see that through Jesus, they now belong to the family of Abraham. And so they're wandering exiles just like him, misunderstood, they're mistreated, and they're looking for their true home in the promised land. Peter continues this idea in the opening song. He praises God for causing people to be born again into a living hope through Jesus' resurrection and the power of the Spirit. God's inviting all people into a new family centered around Jesus, a family that has a new identity as God's beloved children and who have a new hope of a world reborn by God's love when Jesus returns as King. And for people who have this hope, suffering and persecution is actually a strange gift because it burns away false hopes and distractions like a purifying fire, and it reminds us of our true home and hope. And so paradoxically, life's hardships actually deepen our faith. They make it more genuine. From here, Peter's going to move on into the body of the letter, but he's going to explore all these ideas in greater depth. So he first develops the theme about the new family identity of God's people. He takes even more memorable Old Testament images about the family of Israel, and then he applies them to these Gentile Christians. So like the Israelites who left Egypt, they too are to gird up their loins and leave behind their former way of life on the way to a new future. So they are the holy people of God now who are journeying through the wilderness. They are the people of the new Exodus who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, who's the ultimate Passover lamb. They are the people of the new covenant who have God's word buried deep inside them, restoring their hearts and renewing their minds. They are the new temple built on the foundation of Jesus himself, and they're the new kingdom of priests who are serving God as his representatives to the nations. Now, by applying all of these amazing images to these persecuted Gentile Christians, Peter is placing their suffering within a brand new story. And this leads into the next section. Their persecution can actually help bring clarity to their mission in the world, to bear witness to God's mercy among the nations. So Peter first encourages them to submit to Roman rule, even if it's oppressive. Yes, he acknowledges their persecution, their suffering is unjust, but violent resistance solves nothing, not to mention that it betrays the teachings of Jesus who loved his enemies instead of killing them. Peter then specifically highlights the very difficult situation that Christian slaves and wives faced when they lived in Roman households where the patriarch did not follow Jesus. 
The problem was that it was expected that everyone in the household would submit to and worship the patriarchs' gods. And so Peter says it's true. All Christians, including Roman wives and slaves, have been fully liberated by Jesus. But they are to demonstrate that freedom not through rebellion, but by resisting evil the same way Jesus did, through showing love and generosity to your enemies. And in homes where the husband is also a Christian, it's a different story. They are to treat their wives totally different from their Roman neighbors, regarding them as equals before God who are worthy of honor and respect. And Peter's hopeful that this imitation of Jesus' love and upside-down kingdom will give power to their words as they bear witness to God's mercy and show people the beautiful truth about the way of Jesus. But Peter's also a realist. He knows that Christians will continue to be persecuted, and so he reminds them of their future vindication. He recalls how Jesus himself was unfairly persecuted and murdered by corrupt human powers, but in reality, he was dying for the sins of his enemies. And afterward, he was vindicated and given resurrection life by the Spirit. And now Jesus is exalted as king over all human and spiritual powers. Then Peter shows how baptism points to the vindication of Jesus' followers. So like Noah, they've been saved through the waters, not as a magic ritual, but as a sacred symbol that shows their change of heart, their desire to be joined to Jesus in his death and his resurrection. And so now, even if they are murdered for following Jesus, their hope is in future vindication and exaltation alongside their king. Which leads Peter into the final movement. He recalls Jesus' words that his disciples should consider it an honor and joy to be persecuted just like he was. Peter then calls on church leaders to care for these suffering Christians and to show the same kind of servant leadership that Jesus did to his followers. And finally, Peter reminds these Christians about the real enemy that they are facing. This hostility isn't simply cultural or even political. There are dark forces of spiritual evil at work inspiring hatred and violence, and they are to resist this evil by staying faithful to Jesus and his teachings and by anticipating his return and ultimate victory over such evil. Peter concludes with a prayer for divine strength, and he sends a greeting from the church in Rome, which he calls Babylon. Now, this is cool. Peter's adopting here the tradition of the Old Testament prophets, for whom the name Babylon became an archetype for any and every corrupt nation. And so Rome has become the new Babylon, and its empire is where God's people are now exiled from their true home in the renewed creation. Peter's first letter is a powerful reminder of Christian hope in the midst of suffering. God's people have been a misunderstood minority from the very beginning, and they should expect to face hostility because they've chosen to live under the rule of a different king, Jesus. However, persecution can become a strange gift to the church because it offers a chance to show others the surprising generosity and love of Jesus, which is fueled by the hope of his return. And that's what 1 Peter is all about. And that's all there is to it. <laughs> Those guys do a fantastic job of summarizing these books of the Bible. I really encourage you towards the Bible Project because it's a very helpful way of absorbing large amounts of, of scriptural truth very quickly. But it gives us that, that flavor of what was being written, why it was being written, and the context it's being written into. There's an awful lot in this letter. The Archbishop Leighton says this about the... About the um, about the letter. The excellent epistle is a brief and very clear summary both of the consolations and instructions needful for the encouragement and direction of a Christian in his journey to heaven, elevating his thoughts and desires to that happiness and strengthening him against all opposition in the way, both out of corruption within and the temptations and afflictions from without. 
The letter is all about keeping your eyes on the prize. It's all about keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus in the midst of difficult circumstances, in the midst of being misunderstood, being persecuted, trying to do good against a world that basically is pushing back in different ways. And so I'm going to quickly whiz through the history. The letter was written in AD 62, 64. Uh, Paul was in captivity in Rome. And um, he sent this letter out uh, from Turkey, sorry, into Turkey. Um, this guy called Sylvanus took this letter and he probably landed up here uh, in his boat uh, and then took it all down through these four Roman promises, uh, Asia, uh, Galatia, Cappadocia and Bithynia and Pontus, which are the four kind of Roman provinces of the time. And there are all these new churches that were popping up along this route here, which um, Sylvanus took this letter to, this circular letter, out to the church to try and encourage people uh, who were living under Roman occupation and, and to a degree, Roman persecution. And so Peter was saying, deepen your trust in God. Even though time is tough uh, and situations are hard, deepen your trust in God because God is going to demonstrate through your circumstances the, the, the quality of the faith that's in you. The video talked about this refining aspect of, of trouble that comes and strengthens our faith because our faith really comes into its own when we're up against it. We see it more and more in the persecuted church. We see more and more. We see that the faith blossoms when we're up against it. And sometimes in the West we struggle because we're not up against it in the same way that the persecuted church is. And we, we struggle to know what we're pushing against or what we're pushing into. And I think it's worthwhile praying and saying, God, you know, how, how can I not just become someone who's absorbed into culture? How can I not just become somebody who is looking for that kind of quiet life, keeping my head down and blending in? So we're just going to look today at the first introduction to this letter, which is right here in 1 Peter 1, verses 1 to 2. So Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered through the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the knowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkle with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. This word there, exiles, it's not, it's not a great translation in your NIV. It's more uh, this old-fashioned word called sojourner. It means that you are travelling through. You're, um, you're a resident alien. You're kind of making your way through to your own home. It's an old-fashioned word. Uh, when Abraham was looking to bury his wife Sarah in the Hittite territory, he said, I am a sojourner and foreigner amongst you. Um, give me a property so I can bury my wife. And it's that old-fashioned word of being a resident alien. Um, you, you're, you, you're not supposed to blend in. You're not supposed to just kind of drop in and adopt all the local cultural practices. You still carry some of that thing that makes you distinctive, that makes you look towards home. And Abraham was this God-wanderer. He was wandering through to the promised land, to the promise that God had given him. And you're all God-wanderers too. You're... you're you, when Jesus comes and meets with you and puts his spirit within you, he put a hunger in you for something greater than this world has to offer. And you're called onwards and upwards towards this place where ultimately you'll be in complete relationship with God. And so we'll talk more about that in a while, but you are a God-wanderer, just like Abraham was. Who remembers the, this guy? Oh. You're right. That's E.T.'s home. Oh. 
phone home. Mm. E.T. phone home. E.T. phone home. Great film. Well, we can't watch it all, but there we go. So E.T. was a sojourner. He was, he was stranded on Earth. He was left behind by his... Uh, by the spaceship that went, and uh, when Elliot found him, he was a sojourner, he was a resident alien, and he was struggling to make sense of the culture into which he'd been placed. And uh, we're a little bit like E.T., some of you more than others looking at this morning. Um, um, we're resident aliens. We're resident aliens. And um, our true identity it no longer lies in our our background or our family or our ethnicity or our culture or your qualifications, your career, what you've achieved, what you think you're going to achieve. Your identity no longer lies in those things. It lies in the fact that you have been bought at a price by Christ and you died and you're hidden in him, it says in Colossians 3.3. And so um, your identity now is as this, this Christ alien that's living in this foreign territory, if you like, waiting for that consummation of the kingdom that we've been talking about over the past few weeks and months. Um, and the fact, the fact that that's true, and the fact that we're kind of scattered by God over the face of the earth, um, it, it can cause us kind of to, to misunderstand and kind of feel dislocated. Um, we, we have a sense that, you know, life isn't as it should be. <clears throat> life isn't, isn't fulfilling as it should be. And it, isn't as, uh, it doesn't give us this sense of we're achieving all that we should be achieving. And um, virtually every follower of Christ I've, I've met has got this sense of there's more. We must be more. We write the songs, don't we? There must be more. We pray God give us more. We ask for more of his spirit. We, we sense that what we currently have and where we currently are isn't how things should be. And that's linked to the fact that we are these sojourners. We're the, these people are travelling through on the way to our promised home. And the truth is, guys, you'll never get rid of that feeling. You'll never get rid of it. It doesn't matter how great your church is, how great the songs are we sing, how great compassion ministry is, how great the talks are you listen to, how great your friends are, how much stuff you have in your life. You'll never get rid of that sense that there must be more. There must be something more that we are kind of leaning forward into. And you can have the most incredible sense of God's presence, the most incredible personal relationship with God, but there will always be that hunger for home. There'll always be that sense of being pulled forward into something more. And that feeling of kind of dislocation is in every, the heart of every spiritual believer. If that's a surprise to you, well, that's, that's, that's the truth. That's evidence that the Holy Spirit is in you. And you've been changed, you've been transformed. You should feel that way. You should feel like there's more. There's more in God to come. And it's really important to know that because there's a growing pressure from culture and from the church in some places, that if you arrange your life in the right way, you can get it all sorted. If you just get it all right, if you just get your habits right, your eating right, your exercise right, your friends right, your church right, your private life right, your personal development right, you get it all right, then somehow you will, you'll live that completely fulfilling life that all the other people on Facebook are living. <laughs> that eludes you. You can't quite, you know, you can't quite reach that, that perfect life that's been presented to you where everything is right and everything is happy and everything is complete and everything is fulfilled. But the truth is, guys, we can't remove this dissatisfaction in our lives because God has placed it there. It's a hunger for home. It's just like E.T. It's a hunger for home that we all have inside us that Pete, Peter writes into when he writes this letter. And everything you need for ultimate contentment is not here. And it is never going to be here. 
And sometimes we take that dissatisfaction and we get grumpy with it. We get grumpy and we start looking for someone to blame. So we looked, looked at people around, who can I blame? Who can I, I can blame you. I can blame you for my unhappiness. You know, if only you did this or only you did that, or if only you did more of this or less of that. Or this. And we can blame the church and we can blame our jobs and we can blame our neighbours and blame our situation and blame our upbringing. And we can blame all sorts of things because we're trying to look for some way to justify this dislocation that we feel inside. And this can make you a little bit like a Christian fruit machine. If I just nudge one reel, hold one reel, you know, shuffle it all about, I'll hit the jackpot. But you won't. You can't. Because you are a sojourner, you are a resident alien, you are on your way home. And though this life can give you a degree of happiness and contentment and satisfaction, it will never fully fulfill you in the way that ultimate communion with your Father will fulfill you when you finally get there. Does that make sense? And so we have to be careful that we don't chase our tails and run around striving to get everything sorted out, trying to, trying to kind of solve this, this holy dissatisfaction that we feel inside because the enemy's very good at keeping us chasing our tails and, and looking across. You know, why do you think God say, don't cover your, don't cover your neighbour? Why did God say that? Because it's a human dispensation to look left and right and say, well, you've got that, and you've got that, and I haven't got that, so I need that, and I need that. And we no longer cover our neighbour's ox or, or mule or donkey. We cover our neighbour's lifestyle. We cover our neighbour's friends. We cover our neighbour's opportunities. We cover this and we cover that. And God knows that there's a dispensation within us to look left and to look right rather than to look forward and to keep our eyes on the prize. And that's what the whole of Peter is about. In the midst of your situation, the circumstance, keep your eyes fixed forward on Jesus. So we are these strange people who live in a strange land. And that produces pressure and sometimes it produces persecution for us. It's not easy to go against the flow, is it? It's much easier to fit in. It's much easier not to stand there. It's much easier to not disagree with somebody if you think they're... Their value system is wrong. It's easy just to conform. But we will experience discomfort because we're different. If you're not experiencing any discomfort, can I suggest that you are blending in far too much? You know, if you're not experiencing any discomfort at all, you've done a great job of camouflaging your Christianity uh, and keeping a low profile. You've gone into stealth mode. You know, you're off the radar, off the grid. You should be experiencing some kind of spiritual backlash, some kind of knocking up against the system if... If, if Christ is alive in you, because that's the reality that you live in this strange land. And the believers Peter was writing to were suffering persecution from the Romans and the households they were living in, and this, you know, you, you, must, you must worship the household gods, you must come under this system. We don't have that kind of direct persecution where we are, but you will find it in different ways in your workplaces, in, in your homes, in your schools, you'll find it there as well. And uh, how do we respond to that? Well, Peter says, respond in love. We respond in love, but we're never called just to blend in. We're never called just to kind of keep a low profile and duck down. We're called to respond in love, but we are called to respond and recognise that we, we have to stand counterculturally and live differently and shine for God wherever he's placed us. And sometimes we assume or we make the dangerous assumption that if it's trouble in our life, well, God isn't there. You know, trouble equals no God, no trouble equals blessing. Not true. Read your New Testament. You know, everybody who was following God was really under it. Was really under it. You know, everybody who was trying to push on and plant churches or extend the kingdom, they were really facing spiritual backlash. And so, you know, quiet life doesn't necessarily equal God's presence, 
if you're going through difficulties and challenges, then Peter would tell you that's a refining process that God is using to deepen and strengthen your faith. Uh, Rick Warren, the pastor of Saddleback, he said this. Life's a series of problems. Yep. No? Great. Um, Either you're in one now or you've just come out of one or you're ready to get into the next one. The reason for this is that God is more interested in your character than your comfort. Hold the front page. God is more interested in your character than your comfort. Shocked? Stunned? You are. Underneath, I can tell you, oh, rats. God is more interested in making your life holy than he is in making your life happy. We can be reasonably happy here on earth, but that's not the goal of life. The goal is to grow in character in Christ-likeness. And so, as we journey through life, and life is hard and life is tough, and all sorts of things come across our path, God is using those circumstances to refine us and grow us. God's more interested in making you holy than he's in making you happy. Because he's shaping you. Culture's continually telling you that the goal of life is to rid yourself of all anxiety, all, all fear, all insecurity, all, all, you know, you can assure yourself, you can get every remedy you want to remove every kind of trauma from around yourself. That's what culture would say, take out this policy, do this, live this way, have this, store this, do this, and eventually you'll manage to kind of insulate yourself from every kind of problem or fear or anxiety. Completely false. You will never be able to do that because life is hard, life is tough. But we're called in the midst of that toughness for our faith to grow and grow and Christ to be more revealed. So we have this holy dissatisfaction within us that we, we're hungering towards home, but we're called to be salt and light right here on the earth. And you know, and I know, that things are broken. You can't fix things. Things are broken to the point of being unfixable. You've only got to watch the news more and more to see just how broken things are. And we know that, you know, suddenly, no one's going to wave a magic wand and everything's going to be okay. We live in a very difficult, very broken world. But we also know we have a different hope to the world. We have a hope that Christ will one day bring all this to completion. God will one day bring everything to completion and make every right wrong. And so we live in that hope. And understanding the source of this dislocation is really important for us as believers. Because if we look to the earth to solve our problems, if we look to the world to make things right for us, then we're missing the fact that we are called to be resident aliens. And so we need to stop trying to rearrange our lives to get rid of our discomfort. Somehow we need to lean into it and grow in our identity in Christ. That's what Peter would say. And the church is a great place to do that. Church is a great place because the church is the collective family of God. And as we come together and support each other and pray for one another, and we, we kind of lend an ear to the discomfort that we're all walking through, we grow in our collective identity in Christ. When the, the Apostle Paul wrote this, he said, I've learnt the secret of being content in every, any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, or living in plenty or want. He wrote that in the letter to the Philippians. And he described this process of going through uh, growth in Christ, so that regardless of his circumstances, he found this contentment. Uh, he, could be, he could be at peace with his situation. And he said he'd, le- he'd learned this. He'd learned this of going through all these different... Um, and, uh, Paul went through an awful lot of difficulties. He was shipwrecked, he was beaten, he was hungry, he was stoned, he was misunderstood, he was imprisoned... He had a whole catalogue of difficult circumstances. Yet he said, in all of that, I've somehow learnt the secret of finding contentment 
recognizing that my hope, my security, doesn't lie in my circumstance. It lies in a greater thing. It lies in the person of Christ Jesus. So in the text, Peter says there that we are being sanctified. Hang on, let's go back to the text. There you go. We're being sanctified by the work of the Spirit. And this is the process where the Holy Spirit is pulling you and transforming you and changing you day by day, moment by moment. That's what sanctification means. It's this ongoing transformation that is taking place in every believer. The Father is making you increasingly to look more and more like Jesus. Less like E.T., more like Jesus. And that's sanctification. And God is using every circumstance, every tool at his disposal to do that. And so you might think the things that you go through in life have no meaning, but God says, I will use them to increase Christ's likeness in you. I will use them to create a deeper sanctification. Sanctification means being set apart for a holy purpose. And so the elements that were in the temple that were used uh, to come and minister to God, they were sanctified. And so sanctification means God is setting you apart by degrees for a holy purpose. And that's what he's doing through the circumstances of life. And he's using the situations around you to make you obedient to Jesus Christ. Ultimately, we're journeying to complete obedience in Christ, aren't we? We're journeying to a place where God's will gets done completely. Let your will be done, let your kingdom come, we pray. A place in time, in the future, when God's will will be done completely. We're journeying to a consummation where you and I will be completely obedient in Christ. You know, we, we don't define, in Riverside, we don't define anymore a formal membership. What we try and do is we try and put Jesus at the centre of what we do. And we say, which way is your direction of travel? Are you travelling towards Jesus in your life, or are you travelling away from Jesus? And it's a very easy thing to do. You can do a kind of stock tech. You can, you can look at your week and say, okay, is that decision there moving me closer to Jesus or further away? Is that choice there moving me closer to Jesus or further away? And it's really easy to do. And you can determine by looking at your life whether your, your general prevailing direction is towards Christ or away from him. Because Jesus said, follow me, didn't he? And so we can say, we're, if your life is moving towards Christ, then you are moving towards a greater obedience in Christ. If you're making choices that take you away from Christ, then you can say, I'm moving more towards disobedience in Christ. So which way are you journeying? You know, which, if you, as you look at your life and the choices you're making, which way are you journeying? Which way are you heading? Because Christianity isn't just about saying, I'm a Christian and putting a stamp on yourself. It's about following the person of Jesus Christ. And so following involves a direction. So which way is the prevailing direction of your life? And then Peter goes on to say this strange phrase, sprinkled with his blood. Sounds quite gory, doesn't it? Only three times are people sprinkled with blood in the Old Testament. Blood was sprinkled on the altar. Um, blood was sprinkled on Aaron uh, and, and, um, and his sons when they were consecrated as priests. And blood was also sprinkled as a way of symbolising purification. If you, say, had a disease like leprosy, you would be sprinkled with blood in a ceremony that would kind of demonstrate you were being cleansed by God. And we think that's the symbolism that Peter's probably using here in the text. He's saying that you are continually being sprinkled with Christ's blood for cleansing. And so as you go about your daily life, God is continually cleansing you. 
And he's talking about keeping these short accounts with God. We, we paused at the end of worship today, didn't we, to kind of come to God and say sorry. Uh, the old-fashioned word to repent, to turn around, to change our minds, to go another way. So we're saying, God, I'm sorry for this. I want to, I want to receive the blood of your sacrifice again through the cross and cleanse me, renew me, and forgive me. And Peter's saying it's really important as we go through life and we have all these discomforts and difficulties and this holy dislocation that we feel and dissatisfaction, that can pollute us, that can pull us apart to things as we try and you know, medicate our pain. And we can be tempted to do all sorts of different things. And he says, you remember that you've got this way of continually being consecrated and renewed and sprinkled and set apart. So he's saying, keep short accounts with Jesus as you journey through the difficulties of life. It's really, really important. Let him sprinkle you. Let him cleanse you. Let him restore you. And your goal and my goal is not to sin, but we do sin. Yeah? Again, nobody. Nobody sins. Okay, so... um, well, Pete says there's, there's a way of dealing with that. There's a way of dealing with that. We can go to Christ and he can restore us because his sacrifice was once and for all and we can be restored by the sprinkling of his blood. And it's almost like a daily application of that to us that keeps us restored and renewed in Christ. We're applying his sacrifice to our life over and over again. So, you know, when you have a wash in the morning, a wash in the evening, just imagine the blood of Christ. Yeah. But that's the symbolism. It's that washing of the blood, that kind of sense of being washed clean in God's presence. Don't kind of stockpile stuff in your life. Don't let it sort of kind, of, kind of try and bring this stuff to God on a regular basis. Have friends who can pray for you and restore you. And Peter concludes, grace and peace to be yours in abundance. He's saying you're going to need this, guys, for the life that you've been called to live. You're going to need God's grace. You're going to need God's peace. And you need it in a... In a, in a huge deposit, a huge way, an abundant way in your life to be able to live the life that Christ is calling you to live. Because he has messed your life up. He has ruined it for you. You can no longer live in ignorance, especially after today. You can't live in ignorance anymore. You know, he's come and he's done something that, that kind of has, has dislocated you with the current situation. You've, you've, you've been unplugged from the matrix, to use an old-fashioned term. You know, you, you've been taken out and now, and now you've got this enlightenment that you carry in Christ. And that has, that has changed things for you. And so we need the grace of God and the abundance of his peace in our lives if we're going to journey through this um, and come out the other side. So we're called to be these lights in the darkness. Peter's all about lifting our heads and giving us perspective. He's trying to help us make sense of the world, make sense of the things that we encounter and the things that we suffer and the dissatisfaction that we feel inside and the key thing is not to try and take that dissatisfaction and fix it with earthly stuff or project it onto other people. Don't get moody, don't get melancholy, don't withdraw. Recognise that that, is, that hunger for home has been placed in you and is in the heart of every believer to some measure. So let's stand together and pray. Thank you for listening. If you would like to contact us about this talk, to hear more or to find out about Riverside Church Whitstable, then visit our website at riversideuk.org. Also, you can contact us through our Facebook page or tweet us at Whit Riverside.